Our reading of Scripture from the New Testament comes from John 2, 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out and the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us uh, uh, go to the Lord in prayer. O Lord, we've heard the words inspired by your Spirit and written by your servant John. Help us digest the majesty of your word, which changes even the hardest of hearts. Let us never take for granted nor consider mundane what is proclaimed in all of Scripture. Lord, your word is necessary for our salvation, for our sanctification, and we ask you to open our ears and hearts and minds as you build up our faith, perfecting us and conforming us to the image of your beloved Son this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're going to hear some words, or a word, in this, specifically the word eschatological. So before we start, I just want to make sure that everyone understands what that word means. Eschatological is derived from the word eschatology, which is the doctrine of the last things, or as I grew up uh, spiritually, (laughs) up in Kingwood, the, the term Eschatology was always referenced to me by our former pastor as the uh, study uh, or the doctrine of ultimate things. So now, having heard that, let us uh, hear the word of the Lord. The account of Jesus' public ministry begins with what the Apostle John describes as the first of the signs. He says this in verse 2, in chapter 2, verse 11. The marriage at Cana, and the transformation of the water into wine has been interpreted in various ways, some of which are highly speculative or extremely allegorical. And the reason for the broad interpretation may be that there is really no discourse surrounding it to clearly explain its significance, unlike some of the other signs in John's Gospel that do have an explanation. We see, for example, after Jesus feeds the multitude in John 6, 1 through 15, Jesus gives the bread of life discourse to the people. And here the significance is that it points back to Numbers 11 and the feeding in the wilderness. Jesus is himself manna from heaven that his wilderness people feed upon. The sign points towards his glory as the provisional incarnate son given to sustain God's people in the estate of sin. But what about the wedding at Cana? What is its significance? 
Broadly speaking, John tells us the significance of everything he has written in his gospel. The Apostle John tells us in his gospel, John one fourteen, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You and I, today we read this gospel and we have the most amazing privilege. We get to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. We get to exclaim with John, we have seen his glory. The glory of the incarnate Son of God. That is the significance of this story. The significance of this gospel and the significance of the Old and New Testaments. That we would read God's infallible, inspired, and inerrant word and see his glory, that is the significance. The story of the wedding in Cana is itself part of a larger section of John called the Cana cycle. And the cycle goes from uh, chapter 2 to chapter 4, and it's framed by references to Cana, and it has the same theme running throughout. This theme can be described as the old being replaced by the new. And in these three chapters of the Cana cycle, we see his glory at the wedding as Jesus replaces the old purifications of the law with the wine of the new kingdom of God. We see his glory in the replacement of the old temple by the new in the risen Lord. Do you recall his statement? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. We see his glory in chapter 3 as he teaches Nicodemus with an exposition of new birth for new creation. Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We see his glory with contrast between the water of Jacob's well and the living water from Christ. In John 4.13, he says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give, I will give him, that I will give him, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. We see his glory with the replacement of the worship in Jerusalem and Mount Gerizim with worship in spirit and truth. John 4 says, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what do we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We see this theme running throughout the whole Cana cycle from chapter 2 to chapter 4. The old is being replaced with the new. The one who had planned the length, the width, and the height of the tabernacle and the temple and everything that takes place within it is now here. The builder of the house has arrived. One greater than Moses is here. As the author of Hebrews reminds us, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So John designates this miracle of turning the water into wine as the first of the signs in verse 11. And this sign was performed in order that his glory would be manifested. Seeing this glory has 
huge eternal effects. Seeing this manifested glory of Jesus resulted in faith from his disciples. They continued to learn more and more to understand the person in whom they followed. It was faith and not some fickle astonishment over the power that was demonstrated before them, like we see in John 2, 23 and 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. For his disciples, though, it wasn't like this. For his disciples, seeing his glory generated real, genuine faith. For those that are chosen in Christ from before the foundations of the world, God gives them eyes to see the glory of Jesus, his beauty and greatness and worth, his holiness and sovereignty. They see him as their greatest treasure and as their Lord. Seeing his glory for believers becomes, becomes an aqueduct into the heart and mind in which flows streams of grace, never-ceasing grace, pouring into their lives. Grace to love, grace to rejoice, grace to live, grace to serve, grace to lay down our lives for others. Grace upon grace. Just as John says in 116, and from his fullness, we all have received grace upon grace. And seeing this fullness, isn't that the desire of your heart? So it makes us cry out, show me your glory. Grant me grace to see your glory. Show me your greatness. It is all I ever wanted. It's all I ever dreamed of. Grant me more of you so I can be more like you. Here it is. In God's word, Jesus manifesting his glory through signs and wonders. Faith springs from seeing the light of the gospel in the glory of Christ. It is presented to us today in God's word. Remember the words of Paul in Romans 10:17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Scripture is always always speaking about seeing the glory of God. We don't ever hear about hearing the glory of God. It's always about seeing the glory of God. Hearing is the means, but seeing is the goal. We must hear what he says in order to see what he reveals. So the purpose of this sign back then in the first century and today is to display Christ's glory and through that to birth faith in those that were called to be his. This first sign is the first validation of the Apostle John's claim in chapter 1, that he and his fellow disciples perceived the glory of the incarnate word, God's one-of-a-kind Son. This is the whole purpose of his gospel. We read in John 20, 31, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It's very characteristic of John to use the word sign. By itself, he uses it a total of six times. There's one instance in which John links the word sight with wonders in verse 448 at the end of the Cana cycle. So Jesus said to him, unless you all see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. 
And this is crucial for understanding the redemptive history that is connected to John's gospel. It is a crystal clear reference to the miracles and mighty deeds by which Israel was led out of Egypt and by which Moses was legitimized as the one who was sent by God. If we look at what is written in Exodus 7.3, that God will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, we see Jesus is doing the same here in Cana, multiplying signs and wonders. He is preparing to lead his people out of captivity, revealing his glory, showing himself to be the obedient son sent by the Father. Again, one greater than Moses is here. One greater than Israel is here. So John begins chapter 2 by writing that the story takes place on the third day. Now, some scholars see no significance with this reference, while others see a possible link between the resurrection or the days of creation and the first two chapters of John. So what is John's point? It seems that there is double meaning behind it. The third day is literally a direct historical and material connection between the wedding at Cana and what took place between Jesus and Nathaniel two days earlier. But the third day is also pointing us towards the resurrection. John then tells us the problem. Wedding feast has ran out of wine. Jesus' mother appeals to him for help. Let's look again at verses 1 through 5. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Mary has unlimited confidence in his capacity to provide new wine, does she not? And you'll notice that her name is not even mentioned. Only her relationship to Jesus is what's important here. But she is absolutely aware of who he is. There's a very popular Christmas song. It makes its round every year. You probably know it. It's called Mary, Did You Know? Well, despite the song's popularity, it is biblically illiterate. It tries to play on people's emotions like a bad pop country song. Among other things, it pretty much states that Mary had no idea who she gave birth to or had no idea that her son would deliver her. But we read in Matthew 1 and Luke 1 the exact opposite. Mary has unlimited confidence in Jesus because God's word had been revealed to her. She understands who she is, who he is. She absolutely understands that. Mary's role in the story emphasizes the nature of Jesus' action and self-revelation. So she appeals to him. They have no wine. Jesus replies to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Then we see his mother say to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there are three things that must be said of the exchange. The first is the more obvious one. People will typically only focus here on the way Jesus replies to his mother. While sounding a bit sharp to our ears, it was not considered to be impolite. What we are seeing here is the glory of the obedient son. Jesus, by rebuking his mother, declares from the very beginning of his ministry his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. He has embarked on his ministry, the purpose of his coming. Do you know what a lodestar is? It's a star used to guide the course of a ship at sea. 
Jesus' only lodestar is to his heavenly Father's will. His absolute allegiance is to the will of the one who sent him. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 8.29, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. In Jesus' sharp yet polite rebuke of his mother, we see the glory of the obedient son to his father. Another point of interest which makes his rebuke toward his mother doubly sharp is when he says, what does this have to do with me? That phrase is used five other times in the New Testament, and every time it is spoken by a demon to Jesus. It is when Jesus intrudes into their domain and starts to exert power where they were in control. And they say, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? And the idea of the phrase sounds like this. I don't want you pressing in here. You shouldn't be coming to me like this. This is not your affair. So Jesus is saying to his mother, woman, this is not your place to be calling out my power. And while Jesus did not approve of what she said, he does take care of the problem anyway. But he had to make clear for the sake of his family and to those of us who read the gospel that being a family member would not serve any advantage to guide his ministry, for he obeys the will of his father as the obedient son. It's not the physical relationship to Jesus that gives anyone anything. His family didn't have an inside track of influence and blessing. What counts is the spiritual relationship of faith. It was a time in Mark's gospel when people called to him while he was speaking in a house. Mark 3, 32 to 34. Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. In other words, followers, not family, have a saving relationship with Jesus. Then we see Jesus say, my hour has not yet come. So what does he mean by that? Well, typically, hour constantly refers to his death on the cross and his exaltation associated with it, or actions that are a consequence of the cross. The phrase, my hour has not yet come, occurs over and over again in John's gospel. John 7, 6 and 8. John 7, 30. John 8, 20. John 12, 23. John 13, 1. John 16, 21. And John 17, 1. The reference here seems to be the hour of the beginning of the breakthrough of the revelation of his glory on earth and in the flesh. But it also seems that there's often double meaning. Jesus is talking about the hour of the beginning, but he is also alluding to the hour of the cross where his blood will spill out like wine. If you remember that on the evening of his arrest, after breaking the bread, he took the cup of wine saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The hour here in John 2 is not that hour yet, but that is the hour he is pursuing. That final hour is why he came. Jesus' hour was the hour of his death when the Lamb of God would take away the sins of the world. This would be the ultimate purification, as John said in 1 John 1.7. The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And he provides for us his blood in abundance, just as we see how he provides wine in abundance at the wedding 
in Cana. And while his hour is still this, at this time an eschatological event, here at the wedding we see an intrusion of the eschatological event as we see the glory of the all-providing Christ, providing new wine for people in Cana of Galilee, an overlooked, disenfranchised people group that were often despised by the religious elite. The immediate issue here is that Jesus cannot seize this hour, the beginning or the end, beforehand, even if his own mother urges him to do so, because it is appointed by the will of another, his father in heaven, and his allegiance is to his father alone. There's also an Old Testament allusion in verse 5 when Jesus' mother tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. It is a close verbal parallel to Pharaoh's words in Genesis chapter 41, 55, instructing the people to do whatever Joseph tells them. Just as Joseph provided famine relief, so Jesus would provide relief during Israel's spiritual famine, filling the stone jars to the brim, and thus pointing to the abundance of the Messianic provision. Again, this is the glory of the all-providing, obedient Son. The scene then shifts in verse 6 to focus on the six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. We look at verse 6. It says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And it's important to understand that these jars were carved of stone and not made of earthenware. In other words, they weren't pottery, which meant that they were valued because according to to the Levitical rules laid out in Leviticus 11.33, they were not subject to ritual contamination or impurity, as were earthenware pots. But what exactly were they used for? Well, each jar was able to contain 20 to 30 gallons, which would be plenty to fill up a large modern-day bathtub. A modern-day bathtub holds about 120 gallons. The purpose of the purification jars were placed there for at least two possible reasons. One, for rinsing the hands before and after every meal, or to be used as the prescribed purification bath before marriage consummation. But the Gospel of John doesn't address the reasons why they are there. And the message that is portrayed is that wine was lacking at the wedding, not the water of the law. These purification jars would point forward to the ultimate purification by the new wine that is his blood. So these jars are requisitioned by Jesus from being there to meet the requirement of the law to remedy the lack of wine that would have made a disaster out of the wedding. The abundance which Jesus provides goes beyond the capacity of the vessels of the law. The water represents the old order of Jewish law and custom, which Jesus was going to replace with something better. Much can be said of wine in the old ancient world. In the Old Testament, wine was often portrayed as a divine blessing. We see this in Genesis 27, 28 and 37, Deuteronomy 7, 13, Judges 9, 13, Psalms 104, 15, Proverbs 3, 10, Song of Songs 7, 9, Isaiah 55, 1, 65, 8, Joel 3, 18, and uh, Zechariah 9, 17. One out of many, many examples is Psalm 104, 14 through 15, where we read that Yahweh causes the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from earth 
and wine to gladden the heart of man. And another is Deuteronomy 7.13, which counts wine as part of covenant blessing, saying, he will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock and the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. But prophetic expectation also casts the Messianic age as a time when wine would flow freely For example, we see wine and banquet imagery in Isaiah 25.6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, the best wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Joel 3.18 speaks of the mountains dripping with wine during the Messianic age. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the streams beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and, the water, and water the valley of Shittim. And Amos 9, 13 through 14 furthers the emphasis of the wine flowing freely. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I shall I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and, and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. This motif, in other words, this theme or this pattern of abundance of wine, which occurs often in prophecy, is characteristic for the glory of the coming kingdom of God. And we also find it in Jesus' own preaching. This new wine is the symbol of salvation that has come and is still to come. Mark 2.22, Luke 22.18 and 30. The identification of the future kingdom of God with the wedding feast also appears regularly in the parables of Jesus. And as was previously mentioned, when instituting the Lord's Supper, Jesus used both wine and bread to symbolize his body and his blood. Mark 14, 25 says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And this verse is also anticipating a post-resurrection messianic banquet. As we come to verses 7 and 8, we see that the sight of the stone water jars for purification and perhaps Maybe this prompts Jesus to think that it was time to manifest his glory with an uh, eternal lesson. The turning water into wine begins. And it's kind of strange because he just told his mother no, because his hour had not yet come. So what exactly is happening here? Well, what Jesus is doing here is saying, no, the climactic hour of my death is not yet here, but I will give you a sign of my death. I will give you an acted out parable of my death and what it will mean. And in verses 7 through 8, we see Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. What is interesting is that Jesus uses this Greek word in verse 8, antlisete, which means to draw out. It is a word commonly used for drawing water from a well. And up to this time, the servants had drawn water to fill their vessels used for ceremonial washing. Now they are to draw for the feast that symbolizes the Messianic banquet. They are to draw from the wine that is pointing forward to the purification that his people will experience 
by his shed blood on the cross. Now is the time that God's people can draw from the abundance as much as they want, just as Isaiah spoke in Isaiah 12, 3 through 6. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. The wine is as plentiful as waters of purification. Although the waters of purification flowed continually since the time of Moses, they could not take away the sin of the world. But the focus of the abundance of wine in verses 7 through 8 disappears in the background of verse 9 as the quality of the wine takes center stage. The master of the feast tastes the wine and calls for the bridegroom, who is responsible for the wine, and remains completely ignorant of what had transpired. I don't know if you caught that. The bridegroom is responsible for the wine. He boasts of the quality of the wine, exclaiming in verse 10 that contrary to customs, the bridegroom had kept the good wine till now. And so ends the story as John perfectly characterizes the life-altering or creation-altering reality that has come into being with the coming uh, work of Jesus. Although he is not the bridegroom or host within this story, Jesus is nonetheless the true bridegroom. And he is nonetheless the true host of that last day's ultimate wedding feast. The resurrected and ascended Christ who offers himself in this age as the good wine, where abundant joy is found and purification from sin is accomplished for his people. And him is given the fullness of God's gifts in their full joy, world illuminating and life giving meaning. It is from his fullness of glorious grace and truth that the church may draw grace upon grace. Brothers and sisters, John writes that the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He puts the old dispensation entirely in the shadow. In the place of the law given through Moses, the Jewish rites of purification, which pointed forward to him, in place of those, he brings grace and truth in all their fullness, and they have now come through Jesus Christ. Jesus takes the purification rituals of Israel and replaces them with a decisively new way of purification, namely his blood. In John 6.55, Jesus said, My blood is true drink. Unless you drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. It is the only way to be purified. And here Jesus shows us his glory by giving us a sign, a supernatural miracle that is serving as an acted-out parable of his provisional death and cleansing blood. His hour, the cross, is the final purification for sin. There is no other way. There is one way to be clean before God. You don't turn to rituals. You turn to Jesus. When John is on the land, island of Patmos, many, many years later, he is given a vision from God um, of a great multitude from every nation standing before the throne of God 
and before the Lamb. They are clothed with white robes because they have been purified. In Revelation 7.14, John finds out who they are. They are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, see the glory of the all-providing, all-sufficient Christ, the one who washes you clean of sin with his blood, the true bridegroom who is now ascended at the Father's right hand, interceding for his bride, preparing a place for us in his Father's house. Do you see the glory of the obedient Son, who as the second Adam opens the way for us to experience face-to-face fellowship with him? Do you see the glory of the resurrected Christ, who on the third day rose again from the dead by the power of of the Spirit. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Let's pray. Father, help us to we- uh, this week to remember what we have seen with eyes of faith, the glory of your obedient Son, Jesus Christ, whom you raised up and exalted in glory. Too often, Lord, the daily grind of our lives causes us to forget that we serve a Lord who is glorious. Our Redeemer is not one who came to be forgotten, but one who came in perfect obedience, sufficiently providing all things through his blood. Help us to remember, even in the upcoming months, that your son is not a baby in a manger, that he is in fact reigning and ruling in power and glory at your right hand in heaven, gathering together his people throughout all ages and all time, so that on the last day we might be gathered as one people, one temple, temple of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.